so anyway, so we, we started this last week with the unknown uh, apostle Matthias. We, we, had, we talked about him last week. That sermon's online if you missed it. Uh, but today we're going to start in on the moment that starts the book of Acts that most people think of when they think of the book of Acts. You know, Cecil B. DeMille, the famous director, was once asked, I think it was right after he did the Ten Commandments, what's your next movie going to be like? He said, I want him to have a movie that starts with an earthquake and builds to a climax, you know. Uh, Now, he's a good Jew. I don't know if you ever read the book of Acts, but it's kind of the book of Acts. It keeps going. You know, it starts with a bang, and it just keeps going. And it starts with this thing called Pentecost, which is a scary word to a lot of Christians today. Uh, And it shouldn't be scary. Let me tell you what this means. This word literally means 50. So those Christians were afraid of Pentecost. They're afraid of the number 50. That's all it means. And the reason it means 50 is because 50 days have passed since Passover. Jesus was crucified right at the Passover time. And so that was the the mark of the first day. And then you count 50 days, that's when Pentecost happens. So he gets risen from the dead. He comes back, spends 40 days with his disciples. They go from there to back to Jerusalem where they wait about 10 days. And on the 50th day, which by the way was celebrated on the Jewish calendar, they just didn't know why, Pentecost happens, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so um, when, when we try very, very hard, uh, and this is going to be really hard not to go off on some rants here, I'm going to try to stay focused on the message that I think God wants to tell us out of this passage and not go down some rabbit holes that I really want to go down. I think I'm going to do a whole other series after this to go through all these that I'm going to bite my tongue on today and throughout the next couple of weeks because there's a lot of controversy over what we're going to talk about. When we get to the power of the Holy Spirit, the church today is divided. And I believe that's the work of the enemy, and I believe it has done great damage to the church. So uh, it kind of makes me angry the more I think about it. But we're going to try to stay out of most of the rabbit holes today. Okay. When the day of Pentecost had come, 50 days had passed, they were all together in one place. And I like the way the King James used to put it was they were all together in one accord. I thought, how they all fit in one Honda? I don't know. But anyway, uh, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested each one on, uh, each, on each one of them. So these, the tongues, like this fire came down, the tongues separated and like would rest above each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So they began speaking in tongues because the Spirit was doing it. The Spirit was doing the talking. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. Now this would have been not long after the Passover. So a lot of people who made that big pilgrimage there, they'd probably still be hanging around for a little bit, visiting some friends and families in the area. But these were Jews from all over. And so they had, they had gone way, way far out. Like we we're talking about uh, Simon of Cyrene from Libya, from very far away. These are, these are long, arduous journeys that they had made. And they're all still there, and that's when Pentecost hits. So this is how it breaks down. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were Jews, but they're Jews from another country. So they knew a different language. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in another country for a long period of time. But after a while... Um, you start missing your language. That, that's, I've, been, I've been in Ukraine, I've been in Russia. Of course, I have two people from Ukraine who still live here. They, they beat me as far as 
time spent in country. But there comes a time when you kind of start missing your language. And if you hear anything or even see anything that's your language, it draws your attention instantly. It just does. Um, this, this happens the other way around. A few months ago, Victoria was ironing in the living room and I was watching television while I ate lunch and I threw on a, and this might seem like I do this all the time, I never do this, but I threw on a Russian-speaking show. And the only reason I did it was because it was about a German shepherd. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I didn't know it was in Russian, right? Uh, that, but, they, but they subtitled it. So I was following along pretty well. Because uh, the nice thing about Russians is they don't speak long, eloquent sentences. They're very short, so it's kind of easy to subtitle those. French is a hard language to subtitle. Russian's easy. And so I was watching, and Victoria's ironing. All of a sudden, she goes, that's Russian. You know, it's like it caught her attention. She was off in her own thoughts, but the language broke through. And that's what's happening here. These people are just going about their business. All of a sudden, hey, I'm hearing my language. What's this? You know? uh, so they were amazed and astonished and say, watch, why are not all these who are them speaking Galileans? Like, they don't know my language. They've never been to my country. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language from which we're born? So he's saying we're all hearing it. And they would pick out their language from all the voices that were coming together. And then they go through all the different countries that are there. I'm going to pass over that part. Uh, so but it says we all hear them in our own tongue speaking, now watch this, of the mighty deeds of God. Now this looks like when you read it, a lot of confusion. It's always kind of troubled me about that because we know God's not a God of confusion, but of order. It's like, what's God doing here when the Holy Spirit comes? And this is why a lot of people kind of are afraid of the Holy Spirit. It just blows things apart, makes everything weird, and, you, and everything gets confusing and chaotic. But that wouldn't be what the Holy Spirit does because he's God, and God is a God of order, not confusion. See, I don't think this is confusing at all. I think what's happening is the disciples are walking out to the edges and they're starting to say, hear ye, hear ye, God is about to speak of his mighty deeds, right? And they're speaking to each language so they got the attention of the people and they brought them all. And I believe, although we don't see this in the text, I believe once they're all there and Peter's going to start preaching, they start translating what Peter is saying to the people in their native tongue. So I don't think this is confusing at all. I think this is like the first multinational meeting. It's like what they do in the UN today. Jesus and, and, and his disciples were doing there at Pentecost. I believe that's what's going on here. So because they start calling out about the mighty deeds of God, well, that'll get your attention, won't it? It's in your language, and you start hearing about these wonderful deeds of God. And they all continue in amazement and great perplexity. I love that word. I didn't even know that was a word, perplexity. They're perplexed. They don't know how this is going on. And then what does this mean? But watch this. Others were mocking them and saying, well, they're full of wine. They're drunk. That's what this is. This is drunk. And from that moment to this, the Holy Spirit's been mocked. I just want you to know that. This is the start of what we're going to talk about today, the attack on the Holy Spirit. And it's still mocked today when people say almost the same thing. Those people are crazy. Those people are nuts. Right? It's almost the same thing. We're going to mock it. Some, some could say, well, they just didn't understand it. But I think they understood what was going on just fine. They, were just, they just played for the other side. And they started mocking them to try to get them to shut up. But Peter stands up and he says, whoa, wait, whoa, wait. He says, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Hear my words. And at this point, I think everybody just starts translating what he says. Peter stands up, going to give the sermon of his life. These men are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And I actually think this is a joke. I think this made them all laugh. And it's like, you know, good Jews don't get drunk until later. You know, I think this is actually a joke that he does. And I, I just say that because it, it is kind of funny that he would say, well, this is how I know they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. People can be drunk nine in the morning, by the way. They certainly can be. I think he was making a little joke. and I think everybody, it broke the tension, right? Um, I had an opportunity to speak in a translated world uh, when I was in Brazil. I, I did a, a presentation there. And it was really weird because in Brazil, they speak Portuguese. 
and they speak some Spanish, so you can kind of get around in, in Brazil with Spanish. But um, in this meeting, we also had people from Japan, and we had people from uh, Germany. And so they sat in the back, and they put the headsets on. And there was somewhere, I don't even know where they were, there were, there were interpreters who were sitting back there. It was like the UN or something. It wasn't that big of a meeting. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it was, I was surprised. I'd never been in one of these before in my life. So I had this small group of people in front of me who speak English. Then I had the Portuguese people who spoke some English, then some Spanish. And um, then I had this other translation thing. So I started into my presentation, which was, you know, I mean, I did it all the time. It was pat by this point. And I knew there were certain points in my presentation where I'd have laugh lines because I tried to keep people's attention if I can. And, and so I had that, those moments, and, and you learn after a while to stop for those moments to let people know it's okay to laugh, because you'd get surprised by that. You know, I wasn't expecting to laugh here, so it's okay. I can laugh. But the funniest part was when I would give the, you know, little line, uh, and a lot of it was kind of, you know, as you might imagine, sarcastic American humor. Uh, so at that moment, it comes, and uh, the people in front of me, the English speakers, they get it, and they chuckle, and I pause and let it. The people who are trying to make do with their broken English and Portuguese, they don't get it, you know, because it's obviously beyond the humor, it is beyond the, their understanding of the language. And so I pause and wait, and I get some laugh here, and I wait for that, and it wasn't coming. And I'd start to move on, and all of a sudden the Germans and Japanese would start laughing, because the interpreters apparently brought it into their language in such a way, oh, this is really weird, you know, I'm going to really change my, my pauses. So Peter's acing it. You know, not only is he preaching, he's preaching a multi-language sermon, and he is acing it. This is just really, to me, just incredible. He said, this is um, what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he starts quoting Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that our poor forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men will dream dreams even on my bond servants both men and women i will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall all prophesy he said this is just the fulfillment of the prophecy of joel he said men of israel listen to these words and i'm cutting out some of his great speech you should go back into acts 2 and read it he says listen to my words jesus the nazarene the man attested to you by god with miracles and wonders and signs which god performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know, this man you nailed to a cross using the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, this is an important thing he just said. He said, you should have known this was the Messiah because you saw the signs and the wonders and you ignored them. That's what he's saying. He's saying that heaven was telling you who he was by all the miracles that he performed. I'm going to come cycle back to that point in a minute, but that's an important point of what he says. He continues, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Christ being the Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? When they realized that they were guilty, Jesus' blood was on their hands, and they realized who, the, who he was, they said, what should we do? And Peter says, well, you need to repent. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's how it's going to happen. You're going to baptize, and, we're, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. It's going to bang, bang. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all you who are far off, and you can insert for all you sitting at Spirit Chapel, because that's what this is saying. He says, for you, for your children, and, and people who aren't even here yet, far off, that this is, this is all of it, this is promised to everybody, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. 
So right here, Peter's already telling them they're going to go reach out to the Gentiles, although Peter doesn't realize what he says. It'll be Paul who ends up going and doing that. And that day, there are about 3,000 saved and added to their number. That's a good sermon. I'm telling you what. He did it multi-language, and 3,000 people got saved. Wow, that's a good sermon. Jesus said he was going to build his church on a rock of Peter, and there it goes. You know, this is the beginning of the Christian church. And it goes on, and it kind of finishes up by saying everybody kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place throughout the apostles. So they were watching the apostles continue to do the miracles. This is Jesus continued. Jesus book two. They're continuing the work of Jesus. They're doing these wonderful signs and miracles. Okay, I have to touch on two things doctrinally before we move on to the main points of the sermon. And this is the rabbit hole. I'm not going to go down. But there are two thoughts that come out of this. And, there's, and they're really represented by most of the teachers you find on the radio and television. Just, just so you know. This is almost a 50-50 divide in Christendom today. Um, the first is the secessionists. And, and uh, this is made up, the, the biggest denomination that, that promotes this is the Southern Baptists. I've mentioned them before. I would say, I guess it's arguable, but I would say the Southern Baptist denomination is the most influential denomination in America today. Uh, it's a who's who's list of people who are teachers and uh, really held in high esteem by most Christians, people like John MacArthur, Charles Stanley, uh, Chuck Swindoll, and a lot of the megachurch pastors are also part of that same denomination. Uh, they teach, and, and their, their main um, seminary is Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the, probably the preeminent, most respected seminaries right now. Uh, that, that seminary teaches as part of doctrine that the Holy Spirit miracles that you see here in Acts 2 have ceased to happen in America today, and the world, it, it's gone. And, and what their point is, and there's a lot of points to secessionism, and I'm not gonna get into all of them. Since the Acts 2 clearly says the signs and wonders are given to authenticate the ones performing them, these were given to the disciples to let everyone know they speak for God. In the same way that they said, look, you should have known Jesus was the Messiah because of the signs and wonders, the signs and wonders were given to the apostles so they knew they still spoke for God. And as soon as they finished their job, which they define uh, without really good scripture reference as establishing the church and writing the Bible, uh, there's no more need for the signs and wonders. They've authenticated them, and so therefore the Holy Spirit ceased its miraculous powers. There's no scripture on earth that tells you that, by the way. You we can't point to one book of one scripture that says that. Uh, they have their other way of, of getting into that, which I'm not going to get into, but that's what they believe. They believe, and that's why you don't see the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit today in churches like you will see in the book of Acts. You can, see, you can stop looking for it. There was no need for it anymore because they're authenticated. The word's been authenticated, and that's all there is to it. So that's uh, how they portray it. Now, it'd be nice if both sides had a label that like, meant the same thing, but they don't. Um, so you have secessionists. It'd be nice if we could call the other group continuous, but they never refer to themselves as a continuous. They usually refer to themselves as charismatics. Sometimes word of faith, sometimes Pentecostal, sometimes... Uh, full gospel, you know, different terms, but I'll just simply call them charismatic for now. Uh, they actually look at the very same thing and say, no, 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 not at all. Since they use the, the prophecy from the book of Joel, uh, and it references the last days, in the last days I will pour out the Spirit, and since we live after the apostles lived, if they're in the last days, guess what? So are we. And therefore, the last days aren't finished and the Holy Spirit's still being poured out upon the earth today as it was in the day of apostles. Okay, um, where does Spirit Chapel fall on this? Oh, we don't take either side. 
Uh, I actually believe that both sides are based on a false premise, and I'm going to walk away from both sides. I used to try to find the middle ground between them. I give up. You can't. Uh, I'm walking away from it entirely. We're going to go on a new journey, and we're going to take neither side, and we're going to let the Bible dictate what we believe, um, and we'll go on. But I'm walking away from these two rabbit holes. I could spend weeks on them. Let me just go where I think we all agree. I think both sides of that agree, and I think most Christendom agrees we're at war. I think everybody agrees with that part, right? They may disagree about what we're at war with. Uh, I have some people who seem to think we're at war with the world. We're not. That's a symptom of the war. That's not the war we're in. We are in war, Paul tells us, and Jesus told us, and Peter tells us, and Jude tells us, and James tells us. We're at the war of the devil. And uh, in Ephesians 6.10, famously, this is probably the best scripture I could find that, that really lies, uh, lays it out. This is Paul writing, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are at war as a spiritual enemy. Now, I realize that according to a recent Barnum study that 60% of Christians, of Christians, do not believe the devil exists. 60% of Christians don't believe the devil, the person, exists. Um, but they're wrong. And they're wrong because Jesus says he does and every one of the apostles says he does. And they try to say, well, you know, back then, everything that seemed weird to them was a demon. So if somebody had seizures, it was a demon. If someone sneezed, it was a demon. If everything was a demon. Everything was a demon. Uh, that's not right because Jesus speaks to these demons and they answer him. And unless somebody's lying to us, that can't be what happened. And Jesus is very clear that the devil is a person. So we are in a spiritual war. And it's kind of weird because we woke up in the spiritual war, right? It's like usually you see war coming. But for a lot of us, we we're kind of living on the other side. And we get saved, we flip sides, and all of a sudden people are shooting at us. It's like one of those, one of those multiplayer games. <laughs> some of you gamers, and those of you who aren't gamers, just give me some grace here. Those multiplayer games, you know, when you respawn and everybody's shooting at you and you don't know why. That's kind of what it's like in the, in the spiritual world. Because all of a sudden everybody's shooting at you and you don't know why. And it's kind of, you're, you're kind of new to this whole thing. Well, I didn't know I was going to be in a war. And, and I just thought I was, you know, becoming a Christian. And, and so all of a sudden the other side's after me. What's going on? Where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? How do I fight this battle? Those are the good questions to ask, you know, because, you know, people are attacking. Uh, so here's something that's really interesting. If you want to know what frightens your enemy, look at what he attacks. Now take a deep breath, take a step back, and take a look at what the devil's attacking in the church today. Because that's what he's afraid of. And I believe that the devil has systematically attacked three things in the church from the very beginning of the church. And I believe that he attacked him in order, and I believe he's been very successful in all three. And if we want to reclaim the church of Acts, we're going to have to fight back against all three. So let me go with number one. Number one, first and foremost, is the person of Jesus Christ. This is under total assault. It'd be okay, I guess, if it were just the, just the culture. The culture's clearly done it. I mean, Jesus Christ is either a punchline or, or a swear word in culture today. I mean, no one ever bangs their thumb and says, ah, Shiva H. Krishna. No one ever says that, right? They don't, they don't take other gods' names in vain. No, just ours. And that's bad enough, but the problem really is that this has happened in the Christian church. You can walk into most modern churches today and not see a cross, and it's deliberate. 
And they'll tell you the reason they don't do it is because it's not seeker-friendly. They, they want people to come in and not feel uncomfortable. The cross makes people feel uncomfortable. The cross was supposed to make people feel uncomfortable. That was the purpose of the cross. But, but they'll, they'll tell you, and they're, they're doing it, quote-unquote, with the best intentions. But it's not just the cross that's been removed from the Christian church. The name of Jesus has been removed from the Christian church. And I don't mean the names of the churches. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I don't care what you call the church, you know. But, but the name of Jesus inside the church gets removed. It is amazing to me. Now, um, I'm not trying to call out our worship DJ, but did anybody pay attention to the three songs we sang today? And how many times the word Jesus appeared in them? We all stood up. We all sang them. Anybody want to guess? You can't answer up. You can pray now. Anybody want to guess? Once. No, at one time. In the second song, the second verse, briefly at the beginning. That was it. Now, that's not to blame our worship DJ because I'm telling you, if you go to the CCLI top 100 list, which is like the billboard for Christian music, the top 90% of the songs don't even mention Jesus. If you don't make a concerted effort to bring a song about Jesus into your worship, you can go the whole year, except for Easter and Christmas because you kind of have to there. But other than Christmas and Easter, you can go the whole year and never sing Jesus' name. You can go into church, in other words, and for a full year, never see a cross and never sing Jesus' name. A Christian church, Jesus has been systematically removed. Why? Well, because Philippians tells us, for this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The devil doesn't want this. He wants to remove the name of Jesus from us. And we must fight back against that. Think about when you're talking to your people and you're, and you're witnessing them and you're talking to them. How many times do you say God and not Jesus? I'm not saying you have to say Jesus all the time. But how many times could you witness to somebody, I really witnessed to them, and you walked away and never said the name of Jesus? We talk about God. We talk about being a child of the king. We like that one. We talk about being a child of God but I'm also a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? That's supposed to mean Christian, Christ, follower of Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ matters. Without him, we're just wannabe Jews. We need Jesus Christ. It is the name of Jesus that we can call upon that gives us the right to stand in front of God the Father and ask him anything. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. It's the resurrection of Jesus that brings us back in restoration with God. Without Jesus, we're wannabe Jews and nothing more. Jesus matters, and he's been taken away from our church. Secondly, the purity of the gospel. And Jesus has warned us about this, and his father warned us about this all the way at the very beginning. In Deuteronomy, he says, look, when you enter the land your Lord God is giving you, for us, that's America, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Don't bring their ways of worshiping their gods into my church. He's clear on that. You can't mix sin and holy. You cannot do that. In Matthew, Jesus puts it this way. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It can't be. It's good for nothing except to be thrown in the street and trampled. We've talked about this before. How does salt lose its flavor? This actually frustrates theologians because it can't. You cannot take a grain of salt, granule of salt, and make it lose its flavor. You can crush it, pulverize it, doesn't matter, it's still salty. You can boil it and boil off the water, it's still salty. The residue is still salty. You can't, especially during Jesus' day, through any ways, means, or means, change the saltiness of salt. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's not talking to a person, he's talking to a group. 
because you can lose the saltiness in a dish. And every cook knows this. Too salty? Add something that's not salty. Water it down. That's all you have to do. In order to lose saltiness, I believe Jesus is saying, just mix in other religions. And you'll lose the saltiness. It's going to take time for us to pull all this stuff out of our religion. I'm telling you, because it is in there. And it started 300 years after Jesus died. It was hard to do while he was on earth. 300 years later, Christianity made a deal with the devil, I believe. And we accepted the Roman government coming in and defining what the church should be. And they set up a structure identical to the structure of Rome, and they turned it into a system and a structure instead of what it was before. And I'll tell you what this is like. This is exactly like. This is exactly like what happens in Samuel when the people say, we want a king, instead of being led by the Father. It's, it's, it's all over again. Because what happens is they put a king in charge of the church. They call him the Pope. And the entire structure is based on the Roman government. And I believe from that moment to this, we've been on a downhill slide because we have stuff mixed in with the salt. But that wasn't the end of it. We did an exercise here at this church um, uh, about six, seven months ago when our Thursday night group. I took phrases out of best-selling Christian books, books that I would probably bet a lot of you own. I took phrases out of them, and I put them on a piece of paper without any attribution, and I took phrases off a Wiccan website. For those of you who don't know what Wiccan is, it's White Witch. It's the, basically the Good Witch. Um, it's, it's, if you want to really look at it, it is exactly the same religion that the Druids practice and, and that the Romans practice and uh, worshiping Mother Earth. That's what that religion is. They don't call it a religion, but that's what it is. And I took those phrases off the website and didn't give any attributes, and we played a game. The game was choose, is this from Christian bestseller or from Wiccan website? And we couldn't tell. It was indistinguishable. It wasn't like this was a little bit like it. It was almost word for word in some cases. There's all kind of stuff that have been mixed in with the purity of the gospel. And we have to get it out, out, out. If we're going to recover the lost church of Acts. Okay, finally, and this is what we really want to talk about today, the attack on the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, from the very moment that they start speaking in tongues and someone try to mock them for being drunk, the Holy Spirit has been attacked. And the devil has done a very, very, very good job of attacking the Holy Spirit. And boy, there's a good reason for that. Because the Holy Spirit is where all the power comes from in order to accomplish what God wants us to do on earth. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just men and women trying to do our best. And I can tell you that's not going to be good enough. Because the enemy doesn't play like that. They, they're bringing spiritual power against us. Jesus said something that troubled a lot of people. He says, look, who's not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. He says, you can speak against me, and I'll forgive you. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is well known as what's, quote, unquote, the unforgivable sin. And that probably scares some people. Did, is that me? Have I already committed the unforgivable sin and therefore I'm condemned to heaven, uh, to hell? Uh, no, I don't think so because you're asking the question. Because I believe what Jesus is saying is very practical. He's saying, look, people change their mind about me all the time. Paul <laughs> would be one notable person who we see change his mind about Jesus. Goes from hating him to serving him as Lord. But if you turn on the Holy Spirit, if you create a barrier between you and the Holy Spirit, you have cut off the one thing that's supposed to lead you into all truth and convict you of all sin. So how are you going to know the truth, and how are you going to know your sin? You're not. 
It's very practical. You kick the Holy Spirit out of your life, you've got no way of coming back to God because you've got nothing to bring you. I, I think it's no accident the devil has attacked the Holy Spirit so vigorously. Um, and James says, you know what? You don't ask. Uh, you ask and you don't receive. Does that sound like anybody's prayer life? I ask and I don't receive. Well, you ask, that's because you ask with wrong motives. You just want to waste it on your own pleasure. If, if, if you would ask with the right motives, then you would receive. But you're not. We're, we're, we're trying to get things for our own motives. And, and I'm going to come back to this very, con- we're going to start with the most controversial gift. There is the gift of tongues. It's silly that it's controversial, but it is. It's like it'll define who will hang out with you as a Christian in many circles. I'm not, I mean, I spent some time in the Bible Belt. I can tell you. Uh, there, are, if you, you know, there are places you can go and you say, well, yeah, I'm an evangelical, uh, that's fine. But when you add charismatic, what do you mean by that? You speak in tongues? You know, if you say yes, they kind of move away from you on the table. It's like it. Or it's the other way around. Oh, you speak in tongues. Oh, come here, come here, come here. You know, it's like that. It, it will actually determine who your friends are in a Christian circle. And it's crazy, but it, it's, it's this gift of tongues. And I always thought, I'm, I have to tell you the truth. I always thought this was the most useless of all gifts. You know, and I grew up in a family, you know, a Christian family, and I grew up in a Christian family that believed in the charismatic gifts. Um, and I thought, I don't even care if I get the gift of tongues. I don't want it. Who wants that? Because the gift of tongues literally is I speak something I don't understand. Literally, that's what it means. Those people who were standing there preaching or speaking in the gift, they had no idea what they were saying. And the reason I know that is because Paul says later, he says, look, if anybody's going to stand up and speak in tongues, someone has to interpret for them. Well, why can't they interpret it? They said it because they don't know what they said. That's the point. Otherwise, it would be interpretation. It's not the gift of interpretation. It's the gift of tongues. I'm thinking, well, who wants that? Who wants to babble? I, no, forget public. I mean, I understand people, oh, I don't want to do that because people make fun of me. Who wants to do it in their private life? I'm going to pray a prayer and not understand what I said. Why? I, you know, just, I guess like, God, I don't, I don't even know why I'd want that. You know, what else you got? Prophecy? I'll take prophecy. You know, faith, all right. I'll do that one. You know, I don't want that long-suffering thing. What else you got? You know, but, but this, you know, I, the gift of tongues, who wants it? And then it suddenly occurred to me, the devil doesn't want me to have it. And I thought, wait a minute, my enemy doesn't want me to get this gift. I wonder why. And all of a sudden I want it because he doesn't want it. So I guess you could say to some degree, I want the gift of tongues just to piss the devil off. I mean, if he doesn't want me to have it, there's probably a good reason for it. So I'm like, okay, I don't fully understand the gift of tongues. I'm clearly missing something somewhere, right? And I think part of the reason why I'm missing is because I always believe there's two levels of gift of tongues. One is what we see in Acts 2, where they're literally speaking other languages, and that'd be kind of cool if God suddenly spoke to Victoria through me in, in Russian. That'd be kind of cool. You know, all right, I wouldn't know what I said. She'd have told me later. But that'd be kind of cool. That was kind of like our marriage vows. I had to tell her what she said later. <laughs> no, no, honey, you promised. You said you would do this in your marriage vows. But, you know, it's like, I, that'd be kind of cool, I guess. But to me, much lower on the level was this idea that I could, pre- I could speak in a tongue that I didn't understand. That's what you may have heard called the prayer tongue, right? Like, that's even worse to me. Because now it's, no one understands it. And I'm praying it, so no one's hearing it. It's like well, the most useless of all useless gifts. But I actually think it's flipped. I think that's the one we want. We want that prayer tongue. Uh, now, Paul uh, says this in Romans 8, and it's very, very interesting. Now, Paul speaks in tongues. Everybody agrees on that. Both sides of the divide agree on that. And Paul says he speaks in tongues. In fact, he says he speaks in tongues more than anybody else. So, you know, Paul is, Paul's like that, right? So he speaks in tongues a lot. So here's a guy who's really proficient, fluent, let's say, in the gift of tongues. 
And he has it. He has it in spades. So uh, here he comes and he says, now there's sometimes I pray and I pray in tongues. This is where the prayer tongue idea comes from. Now, wouldn't you think this would be the most eloquent thing you could possibly hear? Wouldn't it be amazing to hear Paul speak in tongues? Well, here's what he says about it. The same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is how he describes his prayer tongue, groanings. When I pray, groanings. The, the, um, old, the King James, uh, groanings and utterances. Basically just, oh. this is his prayer tongue. What? This has got to be the ugliest sounding prayer tongue there is. You know, what, what is this talking about? Why, why is this exciting? But he says, look, he, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's saying, I start speaking in this tongue of groaning, my prayer language, and the Holy Spirit intercedes on my behalf and speaks to God. And he says, this is a good thing. Clearly, we're not understanding what Paul knows about speaking in tongues, right? Because I don't know, I'm looking around, and you guys have the same expression I have. What good thing? This is weird to me. This is weird. So let me try to show you where this is coming from. And I have a lot of time left, but let me go. Um, so this starts back in, the, in, in Genesis. <clears throat> this is a very famous story. I'm not going to read it to you. It's Genesis 11 for those of you who want to go look it up. This is the Tower of Babel. Famous story. And we kind of know the story. I was taught it in kindergarten. Some of you Catholics, CCD class. Uh, I was taught it in uh, Bible school, right? So here's the story as I was taught it. The man, for some reason, tried to build a tower to heaven. Stairway to heaven, <laughs> way before Led Zeppelin. So they're going to build a tower to heaven, right? And um, God gets mad at them for that, goes down and breaks up their little tower, and he, he makes them all speak in different languages, which is why that's known as babbling to this day. So you don't understand, it's just babbling. And that's what I understood the story said. He got angry with them for trying to build this tower. He busted the tower, and in, for punishment, he, he broke up everybody into different languages. That's not the way the Bible tells the story, however. Um, what it says is they're going to make these bricks and he's going to take them and they're going to build this big uh, place going up to heaven. And you always thought this is stupid because you can't build a tower to heaven. We all know that, right? Uh, so what are they trying to do? But they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. I believe what they're doing here, this is right after the flood or shortly after the flood. I believe they're saying, we're going to build a tower in a city so high, God can't flood us again. So we don't get scattered across the whole earth. I believe this is plan B. In case God gets angry with them again, they're going to have a city high enough that God can't flood them. That's what I think he's doing. So they start doing this. Now, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, watch what he says. Indeed, the people are one and they have one language. What language do they have? You ever thought about that? It's not Hebrew. Hebrew comes after this. What language did they speak? Well, they probably spoke the language they were taught by their parents who learned from their parents. And you trace that back not too many generations and you went up to the parents, Adam and Eve. Where did Adam and Eve learn their language? They got it from God. I believe he's actually saying they have my language. They have the same language that I use to speak the world into existence. That's the language they still have. And that's a problem because apparently that language is powerful. He says, and this is what they've begun to do and nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. He's saying they can do it. Now we say, well, we can't do it. He's saying they can't. 
He's saying with this language that he used to create the world, those people can use to build a tower to heaven. And anything they want to do with this language, they can do because this is the language of creation. That's why he destroys the tower, and that's why he splits up the languages. And he does it in such a way that no one can even confer with each other. Like, do you remember that language we used to have? No, he splits them up. And so they can't even even compare notes to remember the language that he makes them forget. They can't have the language of creation. He can't trust them with it. They're not pure anymore. So he takes the language away. Okay, so that was how it ended. In Zephaniah, there's an interesting prophecy. He says this. For then, he's talking about when he comes back. I will give to the people a pure language that all them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder, to serve him shoulder to shoulder. I'm going to restore the pure language to them and they will work for me shoulder to shoulder when he comes back. I believe that what Paul is saying is there is a tongue, and he says this also in Corinthians, there is a tongue of men and there's also a tongue of angels. Famously, 1 Corinthians 13, it's like, quoted every, every wedding ever. If I speak of to- in the tongues of men or of angels. I think that when he's, what he's describing in Romans 8 is the tongue of angels. Groanings and utterances, are you nuts? It must be beautiful. The language in heaven must be beautiful. It is. But God won't let our tongues form it, I don't think. So I think when the Spirit comes in and is moving in Paul... Paul's mouth can't make that language anymore. So it comes out as groanings and utterances, but the Holy Spirit takes that in the spiritual realm. It becomes the the, the language of God, which means that Paul's prayer starts creating God's will on earth because God creates with his language. This is why he's saying it's a good thing. When I'm speaking and I'm praying, it's great. When the Holy Spirit is praying through me, it's better because the Holy Spirit knows God's will. And God, he will intercede on my behalf and he'll pray God's will in my life and for the people I'm praying for. God's will. And it is the pure language that God used to create the world. That's what, that's what heaven hears. It's not what we hear. I just don't think we can make those sounds anymore. I think we, it's literally been taken away from us. I don't, I don't think we're capable of doing it. Now that's theory. I can't prove any of that. That's just my little theory. That's my kind of most personal theology. Um, you don't want to believe in that. That's fine. Let me give you a couple things that you have to believe in because um, the scripture says so. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. There's that utterance word again. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Don't despise the spirit. Don't. So many times we're saying, I'll take this, but not that. Hey, it's all part of the Holy Spirit. Who are you to despise any part of the Holy Spirit? Who are you to do that? And, and then there's this other verse in Ephesians 4.30 that really struck me once a couple years ago, and I've never been able to shake it, because uh, the way he phrases this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, he's talking about doing things that causes the Holy Spirit to grieve. Now, I think we've all lost a loved one somewhere along the line. And we know what grief is, right? Where we're separated, we're separated from somebody who loves us and who we love. We know what that feels like. He's saying you're doing that to the Holy Spirit. You're separating yourself so far the Holy Spirit misses you 
because you've come between you and the Holy Spirit. You're despising his gifts. You're sinning even though he's trying to convict you. There's many things we do, and it causes the Holy Spirit to grieve for us. We've literally separated ourselves from the Holy Spirit. Now, that gets restored, but for that moment, the Holy Spirit is out of our life because he's grieving us. He's grieving us. That grief comes when you've lost them. The Holy Spirit temporarily has lost you because of your choices. And it's going to take a while to bring you back. And he can rejoice when he finally comes back. But this, we keep disconnecting ourselves from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to know why the Holy Spirit's not moving in our lives because we keep disconnecting us from him. I believe that. I believe that where we are right now as a church is we don't really connect with the Holy Spirit and stay connected. We do for a period, maybe. Maybe there's a time in your life you feel like that, but we don't see it. And I believe that's why you're not seeing, we're not seeing the same kind of miracles today that we saw in the book of Acts. Because they didn't have that disconnect. They stayed connected. And I think that's the difference. I think that's why we're not seeing it today. Okay. Uh, So I guess what I would say is start praying that God starts praying through you. Start asking for God to pray through you. How many times do our prayers start out with thanking him for what he's done and then give him a new list of things to do, right? Oh, dear Lord, I gave you 10 things to do. You did six of them. Thank you, Lord. I accept those six. Now those four plus eight more I need for today, right? This is our prayer life. Thank you for what you did. Now here's what I need you to do now, right? How about adding a part in our prayer life? We say, God, pray through me. What do you want I will be your vessel. Let your spirit flow through me and pray the prayer that you want us to pray. We need to pray for the gifts of tongues, if only because the devil doesn't want you to have it. Would you all please pray with me?